Good morning, everyone. How are we today? This morning, I want to tell two stories. They're straight out of the Bible. They're found in Mark chapter 5. Now, these two stories have basically, uh, I'm going to divide this little uh, chapter into three vignettes, three episodes. Um, The first one is about a man and a problem. And the second one is about a woman and her problem. And the third episode is when the two of them come together uh, and the man's problem is solved. Uh, In the scriptures, uh, we read a lot about Jesus and his um, um, ministry. He was a teacher, a faith healer. Uh, This song that we just sang, it was about the most high God who's also the most nigh God. He's nigh and he's high. In the scriptures, uh, you know, some people, they like the relational God and uh, everything's cool. God's my bud. God's the most nigh God. But he's not the most high God. Uh, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He's not only the most high God, he's also the most nigh God. This week I was reading about uh, some, uh, on a blog, very uh, popular blog today about process theology, uh, which says that God really is not omnipotent. He uh, is not omniscient. He doesn't know what's going to happen. He isn't all-powerful. He's waiting to see what we decide so he can work with us and look into the future. Listen, folks, God is the most high God, and he's not your bud. After he's the most high God, and you understand that he's the most high God, then he's the most nigh God. But if you think that God is at your disposal, uh, you don't have a good understanding of who God is. In the beginning, uh, God created the heavens and the earth. The God of a billion galaxies became man in the flesh, And this story that we have here today, um, actually these two stories, they always bothered me. Why did did God uh, ordain that the scriptures would impose the problem of a hemophiliac woman right in the middle of a man who wants his daughter to be saved before she dies? These two critical things that happen very... Um, down-to-earth problems, uh, Mark chapter 5. And we pick up in Mark chapter 5, verse 21. We have, Jesus has just healed the Gadarene demoniac on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee is about seven miles wide, dozen miles long. Uh, It's one of the few freshwater lakes in the Middle East. And it's not really a sea, it's actually a lake. Uh, Jesus probably lived on the Sea of Galilee. He moved from Nazareth. In Matthew chapter 9, it's called his, Capernaum is called his city. And so while he's over in the region of the Gadarenes, he heals the demoniac. 2,000 pigs run down into the ocean. He demolishes the, uh, the, the agricultural lifestyle of a little town by, imagine, 2,000 pigs dying. Uh, 
Word spreads, you know, they, they get back on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and there's a large crowd that's following Jesus. Um, he's back probably near his hometown, and a ruler of the synagogue, probably or maybe even the synagogue that he frequented. We know that Jesus often went in synagogues in several places in the Bible. He went in there to read or to teach. And in this particular passage in Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse 21, this is what we read. Now, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him, and he was by the sea. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came, Jairus by name, and when he saw him, he fell at his feet. He begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, that she may be healed, and she will live. So Jesus went with him, and a great multitude followed him and thronged him. <clears throat> now, this man is a leader in the synagogue. He's got status in a, in a society where you have religious law. He would be the top dog, the local um, religious leader. We don't have a religious culture here. We have a uh, secular culture, even though we're um, supposedly a Christian nation. But in, like in, an, in the Islamic world, you might have a religious culture where politics and religion are blurred. Politics is religion, and religion is politics. Well, in the ancient Jewish world, it was the same thing. You had Roman authority, and you also had a religious political authority. And there was a religious court, and there were um, uh, secular courts, Roman courts. Uh, we don't know so much about that because we only have one kind of court system. We don't try people in churches and that sort of thing. So this religious ruler, he's probably got status. He's got power. And what does he do? He falls down at Jesus' feet and begs Jesus to come and heal his daughter. Now, my first point is that some people are driven by desperation, Some of you came to church this morning. You are desperate. Uh, your life is uh, closing in financially, emotionally, physically. You've gotten bad news. You don't know how you're going to make your payments. Somebody is after you. Somebody is angry with you. You're having marriage problems, um, sicknesses of every kind. I was telling the Sunday school class, I think it was, uh, that's who I was telling. My father has ailments, and you know, when I get on the phone with him, he's 93 years, almost 93 years old, and he gets on the phone, and I got to listen to his ailments, right? I mean, the older we get, it's back problem, it's this problem, it's uh, which, what doctors are you going to see this week, Dad? And sometimes our health issues, they close in on us. And so we go to God in desperation. In this particular passage, uh, this man shows true leadership, not because he's the head of the synagogue, but because he falls at the feet of his creator. You know, some of us uh, have jobs where we're responsible for a lot of people, management, um, 
Maybe you manage money. Uh, as you get older, you tend to take more responsibility. People are looking to you for leadership. The Bible is pretty clear that um, how many people you lead is not a measurement of your leadership. In this particular passage, this man shows great leadership because he falls at Jesus' feet. He might be driven by desperation, but he turns to the right place. You know, when some people have desperate circumstances, they turn to the wrong place. Drinking, drugs, relationships, money, travel, clothes. Uh, he falls at Jesus' feet. Now, let me make a, a, a theological assessment, a few theological assessments. He's driven by desperation, but before tragedy strikes, he goes to the right person. Now, some people, they wait until it's too late, and then they go fall at Jesus' feet and say, where were you, God? Now, I would venture a guess that nearly every person in this room has something that's in the process of happening. Now, have you taken that particular issue to Jesus, or are you waiting for it to come full circle before you take it uh, to the Lord Jesus? Physically, he's moving toward Jesus, not away from Jesus. Now, he believed in the omnipotence of God, because if he didn't, he wouldn't have. Now, um, if I were to um, take a poll, and I'm going to, I want you to raise your hand if you believe that God is omnipotent. All right, good. Now, show me what that looks like. You say God is omnipotent. Show me what that looks like. Because if you believe that God is all-powerful, you'll make decisions based on on what you say you believe. But unfortunately, we as Christians, oftentimes we function one way that we say we believe something, but in actuality, by our works, we deny that we actually believe that. Our actions deny our stated theology. You know, I need to see somebody who believes in the omnipotence of God. Don't tell me, show me. I need to see that. Don't you need to see that? Preach it, sister. Yes. Don't be afraid. Right, Pastor? That's what you wanted. You wanted some. Don't you want to see the omnipotence of God? Or do you only just want to hear about it? So we come to the second part of the story. Number two, this person is also driven by desperation. We pick up in verse 25. Now, a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. Now, you've got to understand that 2,000 years ago, they didn't have clotting factor and whatever they give people that have. Maybe she had a, um, some other issue, but it seems that if she'd been bleeding for 12 years, that there's a problem, right? Um, verse 26, and had suffered many things from many physicians, She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. It cost her everything. She was desperate. She went to doctors. Doctors couldn't help her. 
When she had heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. If I can just, there's a crowd there, and all I want to do is touch his clothes. If I could touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of the affliction. And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, turned around in the crowd and said, Who touched my clothes? But his disciples said to him, you see the multitude thronging you, and you say, who touched me? And he looked around to see her who had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the, tr- the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace and be healed of your affliction. So this second story, by way of intro, of, still by way of introduction, another woman, she's, she's driven by desperation. She's driven by a 12-year-old health problem. Now, in the ancient world, you have to understand that if you had a, any kind of sore in the Jewish world, if you had a sore that had any kind of uh, fluids um, or a skin rash, blood, you were unclean. And you could not participate in normal activities. So this woman was a social outcast because she was ceremonially unclean, continually. And her physical problem made her um, marginalized in culture. And so she's not going to come to Jesus openly and say, hey, I got a, a, a bleeding problem because... Then she'd be, un- she'd be announcing she was unclean, so she did it secretly. And so many people here today, you have a secret issue. Now the question is, do you bring that to God with faith that the power of God is going to overcome whatever your problem is? That's the story. Because there's throngs of people, they're touching Jesus, their hands are all over him, hoping that maybe they'll be healed or maybe they'll get a piece of the action. They've come because Jesus, the showman, is there. But this woman shows what omnipotent looks like. Omnipotence looks like. Do you, can your children see the omnipotence of God in your life? Can your parents see that you believe in God Almighty? Leaders of the church, pastors, deacons, does the congregation see the omnipotent God in your life? Or is this just about administration? School principal. Do the people in your school see the omnipotence of God in your life? It's kind of a scathing question, isn't it? We call ourselves Christians, and we claim the name of Christ, but the power isn't there very often. 
she shows her faith, and she lives it. There's a theology in the crowd, too. The crowd has a theology. Um, we're just there to see what happens, right? <clears throat> now, right in the middle of this, we start the third episode, and these two people with two different problems. One's got a 12-year-old daughter that's dying, and the other one has a 12-year-old health problem. The 12-year-old health problem gets, gets cured instantaneously. Jesus says some words to her, and immediately he's interrupted. Look at the text, verse 34. Daughter, and he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you whole. Now, I said in Sunday school, we talked about this, you Calvinists out there, it doesn't say God's faith that he gave you, it says your faith. You know, some of us hide, but you say, I don't have the faith. No, that's not the issue, that you don't have the faith. God gives you faith, and you deny to use it because you're obstinate and hard-headed. You know, if God would give me the faith, then I would believe. You hypocrite. You don't use the very faith that you have, and the Holy Spirit testifies to you today that what I say is true because you fail to exercise the faith and the Holy Spirit's conviction. Why did he bring you here today? Did he, hear, did he bring you here so that you could deny him once again? No. The Holy Spirit is there to be our teacher and our comforter and teaches us to exercise our faith, and yet we deny him. And then we blame God for it. If only God would have given me the faith. And then we wonder why there's no power and no omnipotence in our life because we didn't exercise the faith that God had given us, that he's already given us. Don't exercise the faith that you hope to have someday. Exercise the faith that you have right now. If indeed you have some. And we get in this Calvinistic conundrum of blaming him for our own failures to exercise the faith that God has given us. And Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 13, hearing they won't hear, seeing they won't see, lest they should hear with their ears and see with their eyes and be converted and I should heal them. We want healing without the exercising of our faith. We want healing without conversion. We want healing, but we're in denial. And then turn around and blame God for the very thing that he calls us to exercise. So this man, who has a dying daughter, who has just observed with his very own eyes the healing of a hemophiliac woman, imagine, you want Jesus to heal your daughter, 12 years old, she says, I got a 12-year blood problem. And then you have this, what happens in the text. While he was speaking, in other words, while he says, your faith has made you whole, while he was speaking, some came from the ruler of the synagogue's house who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? <clears throat> Why trouble the teacher? Why bother? There are dream killers in this world. Some of them may be in this church. 
Some of them may be on the platform. We kill one another's dreams. We allow people to come and say, your dream is dead. Your hope for the future for your child is gone. We, we do it to our own kids. We do it to our own family. But the only uh, solution is that you take responsibility for whoever is killing your dreams and to say, you will not kill my dreams anymore. Now, these family members, I suppose that they're family members, they came from the man's house right there while Jesus is saying, your faith has made you whole. Tell the man, saying, don't trouble the master anymore. <clears throat> your daughter is dead. It's over your dream is dead. Let me ask you a question. Um, in your life, did you once have a dream? Did you once hope that maybe you would be this or that? Um, did you hope to arrive in this or that place? Um, do you wish that you didn't, weren't born with this problem? Um, do you... Uh, have you been carrying something with you? And other people, they intervene into your life and they say, hey, your daughter, your hopes are dead. Now, <clears throat> what would you have done if you had seen the healing of a woman before your very eyes and then comes in some members of your own family and said, she got what she wanted but you're not going to get what you want. <clears throat> you know, sometimes the death of your dreams are clothed in the garb of realism. Let me say that again. Sometimes the death of your dreams are clothed in the garb of realism. You know what Napoleon said? Napoleon said that the word impossible is only in the dictionary of fools. That word's in God's dictionary. It's, in, it's right here in his dictionary. With God, all things are possible. Uh, with faith. Jesus said, nothing shall be impossible to you. This week I was rebuked by uh, uh, 100, 100 pound woman in this church. I'm talking on the, on the telephone. Um, Don Hubler asked me, sorry Don, I'm gonna rat on you here. <clears throat> Yeah, um, Dr. Sheard, we'd like to bring some people over to the church or to the school and do some prayer walking. I said, oh, that's a great idea. Uh, um, when are you going to do it? How many people? I said, oh, yeah, it's great. Yeah, just let's, let's work it out on the counter. And then she said this. She said, you know, because without Jesus, we're nothing. Oh, ouch. Sometimes we think that we can administrate our way into the future. We can intellectualize our way into the future, we can somehow um, uh, 
ride our own personal strength and our own committees and the intellectual abilities of the people who are around us. But you know something? Without Jesus, we're nothing. And we tend to focus a lot on our training, uh, just how educated or how motivated we are. Listen, sometimes our desperation brings us to the end of our own personal motivation, and we're not, we don't have strength to get beyond our physical difficulties. And this man, there's nothing greater than death, right? <clears throat> so right in the middle of it, he has a, 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 he's got to deal with the family theology of unbelief. And some of you are in families, and members of your own family are not believers, literally. They might be Christians, but they're not believers. And I think there's a vast difference between a Christian and a believer. I hate to break that news to you, but Jesus seemed to imply the same thing, that there's millions that are touching, but only one who's laying hold. We come to church and we sing, but how many of us are actually praising, Brother BJ? We're, we're all singing, but not everybody's praising. We're all praying, but not everybody's laying hold of the living God, believing that they'll be healed just because they touch the garment. Now, there's two groups here in this thing. Then one group informs the other. The person with the problem and the onlookers, and the, and the family has partial faith, and their quality of their faith is not very great. They don't believe in the omnipotence of God and they think being in the presence of Jesus is a little bit too much trouble. Why are you always going to church there? Why don't you stay home with me? You know, after all, don't you know, uh, you're always up there at that church. You're doing the upward thing. You're doing Sunday school. The preacher's always calling you. Why are you always up there? You know, come on. Why are you always with Jesus? How come you're always reading your Bible? You know, half an hour a day reading your Bible? Wow, man, you only got 14, 15 hours of wake time. Why don't you, why, why do you give it? half an hour a day uh, to meeting with God when your friends think that uh, being in the presence of Jesus is a little too much trouble maybe you need to get rid of your friends um, <clears throat> and this is what Jesus says um, when somebody comes in and oh that we would have friends like Jesus so that when somebody comes along and says don't trouble the master don't trouble the teacher anymore your daughter's dead Jesus says this and here's the message this morning. Do not be afraid, only believe. Do not be afraid, only believe. Um, if I were Jesus, I would have turned and looked at the people from the house and said, why don't you just shut up? But Jesus says to Jairus, who had fallen at his feet and did the right thing, he said, do not be afraid, only believe. He didn't say, do not be afraid, let's go see a doctor. Do not be afraid, enroll in my seminary. Do not be afraid, join my church. Do not be afraid, get baptized. By the way, I've done all those things. Go to seminary, join the church, blah, blah, blah. But Jesus says, do not be afraid, only believe. There is a difference between a seminary grad and somebody that actually has faith. Faith is the substance 
of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. The person of faith sees it before it happens and believes that God is able to do something. Jesus says to him, don't be afraid, only believe. Obviously, you don't. You've fallen at your feet. Let me escort you home. And so he takes this man home to his house. And when they get there, there's people wailing. Now, if any of you know about Eastern culture, oh, they scream, they're in public, oh. Collectively, dressed uh, in black, usually, at least in modern culture, when they wail, they put on wailing garments. And so you know what's happening there. Somebody's died, and everybody's there, and Jesus only takes three people with him, it says. Look at the text. And he permitted no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. And then he came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and saw a tumult and those who wept and wailed loudly. When he came in, he said to them, why make this commotion and weep? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. And when he had put them all outside, he took the father and the mother of the child and those who were with him and entered where the child was lying. And he took the child by the hand and said to her, he's got the child, dead child's hand, takes her by the hand, uh, Talitha Kumi, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, arise. Immediately the girl arose and walked. And she was 12 years of age. And they were overcome with great amazement, but he commanded them strictly that no one should know it and said that something should be given her to eat. Now, listen, if there's people in your life that are wailing and have killed your dream, they need to be thrown out of your house. Now, how you can figuratively throw your relatives out, I don't know. But I am sure you'll find a way. Because sometimes God says, you have some bad company, and the bad company is in and around your house, and it's time for you to separate yourself from them, whether it's mentally, physically. Some of you young people, especially up up there in the back row, and, and my buddies who I know really well, listen, you walk with people, they mock you. Your dreams are dead, the whole Jesus thing, you gotta go to church, I know. Listen, sometimes we just have to cast out the mocker. Now, Jesus, Jesus, uh, I'm sure he did it in a nice kind of way. Would you ladies please go do your wailing somewhere else? I have some work to do. The child's only sleeping. God is someone who calls things that are not as though they are. Was Jesus lying when he said she's only sleeping? No, she was dead. But God, in Romans it says, calls those things are not as though they are. And our God can call your dream and raise it from the dead. Now some of you, your dream already died. And the thing about Jarius and the thing that always bothered me is why was the hemophiliac story right in the middle? She had total faith. She didn't even need Jesus to acknowledge her. She knew that he he was God Almighty and all she needed to do was just reach out and touch him. He, on the other hand, had partial faith, family problems, and a dead dream. And Jesus says to her, to him, uh, don't be afraid, only believe. 
Your dream has only been sleeping, and it's not dead. Did you hear what I said? Your dream has only been sleeping, and it's time to be raised from the dead. But that's a dream I had. Dan, that's a dream that I had when I was 20. There is no way that God is going to raise that from the dead. How do you know? If it's still in your mind and you can't get away from it, maybe that's God's dream for your life. And it died for a reason to be resurrected right now because before now you didn't have the faith and Christ to walk you by the hand to get that uh, dream together. Now, uh, I love to preach to the old people. Noah was 500 when he started building the ark. When any of you reach that age, you can turn off my message this morning. But I don't care how old you are. Man, imagine the arthritis the man had. He finished when he was 600. Good thing he had three sons. Listen, your dream's only sleeping. The question is, Jesus speaks to it. Talitha Kumi, rise up. You know what? She arose and they said, give her something to eat. She's walking. Does your dream have legs? Does your dream have legs? Or is some well-meaning relative of yours pronounced death on your dream? My friend, I say to you today, only believe. It doesn't require a better education. When your Savior is bigger than your problem, that's when your dream rises from the dead. But when your problem is bigger than your Savior, you're going to live the consequences of your problem. And we don't want to only believe because we, it's so much easier to go with the collective flow of people that touch the garment of Jesus without any real um, faith because they're there just for the show. Why do you come here on Sunday morning? Do you come really expecting God to meet you today? I came. I, I came expecting God to meet you today. That's why I came. Only believe. Do you want to put your faith in God where he'll actually do something and resurrect your dream? And I doubtless say that many will walk out of here today saying that's a hope, but it's not a reality. I would hope that some, some would say, you know, I need to make some circumstantial changes in my life. I need to put out people out of my house that are wailing because my dream is dead. I worked with a man uh, about 25 years ago mopping floors in a New York City public school. Um, he said, I wanted to be an agricultural missionary, and I never, never did it. So now I have a little farm at up there in Binghamton. Listen. <clears throat> I'll tell you what I would do. At that point, he was maybe 65. I'd say, it's time for me to be an agricultural missionary. Honey, pack your bags. Some of you are hard-hearted, and you have different states of your conviction 
some of you um, have a 20-year hardened heart, and it's all callous and grown over, and you don't think that the Holy Spirit is all the way underneath that callous that you've built up to avoid the God-given calling in your life. Some of you young people have walked down a road um, where you've already given up your dream because uh, life looks better somewhere else. My friend, you need to believe and resurrect that dream from the dead because your greatest joy is walking with the Savior. Your daughter lives. In summary, we come to Jesus in our desperation. Some of us have the faith just to touch him and be healed. Others need to be walked back to their home and shown with their own two eyes that the people that they're associating with are really not good for them and their faith. And they need to be cast out of your life. And Jesus needs to go in, come into your home, literally probably for some of you, and raise that child of yours from the dead. And you don't need to go broadcasting. Jesus says, don't tell anybody what happened here because why should you talk to people who have an ethic of death when I have an ethic of life? My friend, God's ethic and God's plan for you is life. It's life. It's something great. Why are you minimizing what God is going to do in your life? Jesus says, fear not, only believe. Father, we thank you, we thank you, Father, that you are a great God, uh, a great king above all gods. Father, we pray like the psalmist, uh, be lifted up, O ye gates, be lifted up, O you everlasting doors, and the king of glory will come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord mighty in battle. Father, we pray that you would do battle in the lives of our people today and that they would humble themselves, fall at your feet, recognize their faith issues, cast out the family and friends uh, that weep and wail over their dead dreams and that you would raise them up uh, for your honor and glory, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.